Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. And welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today has been called the Queen of Scar, a musician who's had five top 40 singles in a music career spanning more than 40 years. She came to prominence in the 1970s as the lead singer of the two-tone band The Selector, performing alongside Madness and the Specials, and is now gaining a new following with another album and a European tour. Rolling Stone magazine once said she was blessed with a bewitching soprano and dramatic panache, and her voice reached plateaus that made every other musical detail sound like part of a backdrop painted just to set the stage for her entrance. She has also been an actress with roles in film and television shows, including The Bill and Hollyoaks. She's a Deputy Lieutenant for the West Midlands and was recently awarded an OBE by the King for her services to entertainment. But throughout her childhood, she says she felt like a cuckoo in somebody else's nest. Music was her escape. As she puts it, any band is like a surrogate family. Pauline Black, thank you very much for coming to join us on Past Imperfect. And we've come to see you here at the Coventry Music Museum, which is near your home and has the most incredible memorabilia around it and albums and pigeons, a lot of pigeons and spangles and trilbies and actually your sheepskin coat. But can you tell us a bit about the museum? Um, well, the museum, this is its uh, home and has been, I guess, for probably about eight years now. It was formerly at Coventry University. They had a, an installation there. It's uh, the brainchild of uh, Pete Chambers, who is our maestro of all things sort of heritage-wise about music in Coventry. And he's put this together, and it's such a mammoth piece of work and in a, such an unprepossessing place in Coventry. There's even an old car. There's a sort of John Lennon bench. Exactly. Guitars exactly. hanging all around. Well, I think that people forget. I mean, people associate, obviously, Coventry with two-tone. But it has a much kind of deeper... Uh, heritage than that um, and uh, Delia Derbyshire who is famous for doing the whole uh, Doctor Who radiophonic workshop at the BBC um, she lived in Coventry and uh, all kinds of people Frank Highfield lived in Coventry um, I, I'm just trying to think of others as well but 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 I it's it obviously has a very rich history. Oh, yes, Lieutenant Pigeon. No <laughs> one could forget mouldy old dough. <laughs> you once said that you moved to Coventry as a student because you wanted to be in the centre of, of the country, um, having always felt like an outsider. And do you now feel you are now in the middle of England? 
Yes, I've always thought I was in the middle of England. I mean, the reason why I moved here is because I, I went to Coventry University, but it was Lanchester Polytechnic in those times. And um, I just wanted to be far enough away from my mother that she couldn't be visiting me all the time. But if I ran out of money, I could always go home. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 100 miles seemed pretty consistent just with that. Just about right. <laughs> And you were born actually in Romford in Essex in 1953. And you... I was actually born in Coggeshall. Oh, in Coggeshall. In okay. Coggeshall, which is in Essex. It's near yeah. Braintree. And at that time was a very small little village, more or less. Mm. But anyway, they had this rather quaint thing called a mother and baby home, which meant that if you got pregnant and you were very young, which my mother was, she was 17, and, uh, and nobody wanted to, well, you were obviously unmarried. Um, they were also called unmarried mothers' homes. <laughs> uh, then you got shipped off to these places to have your baby in secret so that you could return to the family bosom and nobody was any the wiser and from there the child was adopted. And your name originally was Belinda Magnus. Well, I, my birth name was Belinda Magnus. I was adopted by a family, the Vickers family, who lived in Romford and transported to Romford when I was about four weeks old they were so surprised that they could just take me out of this place (laughs) that they actually didn't have a cot or anything I mean I slept in a drawer I mean my parents at that time they were in their 40s and my mother had had um, Bell's palsy and it had pulled her face to the side so she'd already had four sons and uh, they were so new I think to the idea of having a baby that they were going to adopt that they actually hadn't prepared anything and this is what it was like in those days you could kind of turn up to these places have a look round the babies and say I'll have that one please I was picked because I was a girl they didn't have a girl and they'd always wanted a girl and they they didn't actually care I don't think or didn't necessarily give it too much thought that um, you know this this child was black And they were white. You know, in those days, I mean, it wasn't like my parents were, you know, they had racist ideas. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But they were no worse than anyone else in this country at that time in terms of how they felt um, uh, uh, about black people who were coming here. Um, And, but I give them their due. I mean, even though they had no real knowledge of what it might be to have a mixed-race child in, 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 in the family bosom, as it were. Um, they, were they were very kind and they were very loving, um, and uh, particularly my dad. And, um, yeah, and gave me a good start in life. So what was your earliest memory? My earliest memory? Mm. Uh, vomiting all over the floor while my mother was <laughs> doing the washing. Um, uh, that morning, I, she used to come down. I mean, she was very old school. So we're talking about a woman who's in her mid-40s. And, um, and there'd be an old butler sink. And uh, she would wash things by hand with a, with a board, a washboard thing, um, scrubbing against that. Give it a bit of a mangle. <laughs> and then hang it out to dry after, after rinsing. And I remember sitting there having my breakfast. And she started talking to me about um, being adopted because I was about to start school. That was how it came about. And obviously people were going to notice the anomaly that I was a little black kid and, uh, and I had a white mum. And looking back on it now, I can see it from her point of view. 
because, um, you know, anyone who had uh, interracial relationships were completely frowned upon at that time. Um, and if you were just a lone white mother out there on the street trailing along a little black kid, people outside of the immediate community... Uh, would think all kinds of things, particularly in those days. But it must have felt as if your history was just being rewritten suddenly and, and your life must have just turned upside down. Well, it did turn upside down, but I didn't really feel as though I had any recourse to to complain about it. The complaining went on in my head um, and the processing of it went on in my head. I, I accepted what she was saying um, as intellectually as any kid of, of that age can, but my whole body <laughs> decided to regurgitate my breakfast all over the sheets that were on the floor at the time that she was waiting to to, to wash. And what did and, she say? Was she um, sympathetic? Oh, I, she went quite ballistic, really. Oh, my goodness. You know, but, uh, you know, the poor woman at that time was probably... Um, I'm not sure then, but certainly later, was uh, taking what we might call um, amphetamines. I mean, they were purple hearts, but they were given to women who were obviously in in perimenopause. And um, to uh, sort out any problems of depression or things like this. You've got to remember she'd had Bell's palsy, so half of her face had um, become a little bit like liquid wax. And um, she, the reason why she got me was because she didn't want to go outside the family home. And the doctor, in his wisdom, rather than treat her for any perimenopausal symptoms, decided that what she needed was a baby. So she couldn't have a baby herself, so um, off they went and uh, and it's extraordinary. got one. Yes, and it is extraordinary when you actually put it as boldly mm-hmm. as that. It is extraordinary. But that is the world in 1953 and the world for women. And that's what I'm most passionate about is that people actually know that. Know that and know how it was for women because it's very different from how it is now if, you, if you're a single mother with a child. And your birth father was a Nigerian prince. Your birth father was a Jewish schoolgirl. So an astonishing mixture. And did you ever feel in any way that you were assimilated into the family? Or did you always know that you had this difference? Um, I felt different. I mean, obviously, visibly, I was different. And and that was the thing to to, um, decide how you felt about that. I think it was the way it was explained to me that um, black men in those days, very much um, how white working class society saw it, were they were predatory. They were predatory upon white females in some way or, or another, which was totally untrue. But, I mean, a lot of people's ideas, I suppose, of um, black males was forged during the war and through GIs and things like that and children that got left behind because people went back to their own countries and, and, and things like this. But, I mean, there's one thing that I can absolutely... Yeah, I'm quite emphatic about you can't stop people miscegenating. <laughs> you just can't do it. I mean, people would do that. I mean, I, when I actually tracked my mother down, my, my um, uh, birth mother, um, I said, you know, what attracted you towards my father? I'd seen photos of him. And she said, 
he just seemed so interesting. Mm -hmm. She said everybody in this country was, you know, the post-war kind of everything was grey and and quite uninteresting and the way people dressed was uninteresting. And here was this guy who seemed supremely interesting and vice versa. (laughs) You wrote in your memoir that adoption is like having a total blood transfusion. It may save your life in the short term, but if it's not a perfect match, rejection issues may appear much later. Did you feel that you were being rejected by the family or that there was almost something wrong with you that you didn't fit in? Um, I didn't. Rejection by the family is probably too much. I probably rejected them more than they rejected me, if I'm being honest about it in, you know, 2020 hindsight after 12 years of having written this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a different, I wouldn't say I'm a totally different person, but I I feel differently now and I'm much more forgiving Mm -hmm. possibly than when I I wrote Black by Design. Um, It's... (laughs) It's just one of those things where if it had been explained more clearly and they had had a handle on their own racist issues and how to deal with that in relation to the fact that here you are, you have a daughter who's mixed race, you've got to address that. There has got to be a time when you address that. And my mother did admit, you know, before just before she died, she died in uh, 1988, she, she, she did admit that she wished she'd given me all of the information years before and really talked about it. But the thing is, nobody talked about it then. They didn't talk about it. All of that came afterwards. The 60s happened. You know, there were more black faces around on the street and culturally and all of that. And, uh, you know, when I was born, I was the black and white minstrel show on the television. That's what I grew up with. And Shirley Bassey. She would much rather (laughs) that I had been Shirley Bassey, I'm afraid, Um, you know, because she could have sewed all those sequins on my dress. She was was quite... uh, She didn't mind me being a a, a musician, um, but, uh, yeah, she would have preferred that variety of musician. Well, that was never going to happen. (laughs) What was your relationship like with your brothers? Because they must have treated you slightly differently because you were a girl as well, that... Was it great having four older brothers? No. They protect you. Okay. <laughs> well, I didn't really have much to do with them. My eldest brother, he'd got married the year before I turned up, so he had moved out of the house. Um, my um, next uh, brother down, uh, Tony, he had been in the army and doing national service at the time, and he used to wheel me around in my pram and every now and again sort of, um, you know, do-gooding ladies in Romford Market would say, oh, look what you've brought back with you, (laughs) and things like that. Um, (laughs) So that didn't go down very well. And then he got married and left home, which left um, a 12-year-old, I think, at the time, and an 8-year-old. The 8-year-old was most displeased about my arrival because the attention was off him. He was the youngest. And the 12-year-old had been adopted um, himself, um, but it much later came out that um, the, my adoptive father was having um, an affair with his mother. So we still don't know about the parentage of uh, of uh, that particular brother. Oh, mm. really? Quite complicated. But it was quite complicated, <laughs> but none of us knew that then. But mm. they were, when I was trying to trace my mother, 
Um, they were extraordinary um, repositories of information because I went to them and said, well, what do you remember? Mm -hmm. And they told me all kinds of stories about going to Dagenham in Essex and finding this family, a Jewish family, over there. And my mother, I think my my let's get this right my birth mother had stopped paying for me because they fostered me for 18 months before I was adopted um and she'd stopped sending checks checks used to come via um registered letters at that time and then you took them to the post office and cashed them and I think she was paying like 30 shillings or something a month for my upkeep and um, they stopped coming and so my mother was aware of where she lived she went there and um, and it was uh, one of my brothers told me that they were more or less chased down the street by what would have been my grandmother who took a very very dim view I mean she she thought that you know the dirty washing had gone i.e me and um, she wasn't going to have to deal with that anymore and suddenly there they were in a taxi and my brother had a memory of that so that gave me some idea of... I don't think my birth mother was there at the time. Otherwise, obviously, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And your birth mother actually came and watched you at school, didn't she, she said later? She used to stand at the end of the road. I didn't know that. So she was very moving. Oh, yeah. oh, totally. Does I mean, that she was comfort 17. you in some ways now? She was 17. Yes, it does. It does, because I did really feel a bit like sort of... Um, well, you just feel like discarded goods. That and the fact that, um, you know, your blackness is not seen as anything good. Yeah. Nothing good about Your relatives that. sound appalling. So one gave you a... One aunt gave you a <laughs> Poor old a Uncle Will's golly, probably rolling in his grave at the moment. One gave you a gollywog. <laughs> and yes. other cousins used to talk about chocolate auntie yes. or whatever. Yeah. But, but, but there was... Mm. You have to see it through the prism of the time. It's all very well seeing it now. I mean, it's like everybody and their mother is a sort of, you know, identity activist in some way or (laughs) or another. Um, At the time, um, there was nothing, nobody saw anything wrong, particularly in Essex. But did you? You must have felt it. Uh, No, I I, I think I embraced this gollywog as like a really cute thing. Um, Did you know the word racist at all? No, no. I I mean, it was not in common parlance at all. Mm. Was all. Was, no, there, there were there were um, colour bars in in most uh, places, probably around uh, Romford at that time. I mean, okay, if you went up to Soho or places like that, um, there were uh, clubs that played music. Um, a, a friend of mine, her father at that time, he he had a club. Rhoda Dakar of the Body Snatchers, um, her father had a club in London, but uh, where, where people mixed obviously, and listen to different kinds of music. And ska music during the 50s was coming over from the Caribbean, so that was here. Uh, People like Laurel Aitken, um, uh, people like Prince Buster, they visited here. Um, They played their music, but it was very underground, and places like Hammersmith Palais would have played that music. But back in Romford, you weren't allowed back to join Romford, the brownies. The, the, uh, the, the uh, backwater of all time um, yeah. during that period. Um, yes, yeah, somebody very usefully at the church who ran the brownies. Because I wanted to join the brownies. I just thought, well, I'm, I'm a natural, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and my friends at school, they were in the brownies. So I obviously wanted to go. 
And um, we turned up, and I can always remember this, one of those little kind of uh, churches with a villagey hall on the side of it uh, where we lived. And uh, she knocked on the door, my mother, very timidly. And uh, this rather imperious, uh, probably the arcade, I suppose, sort of came to the door, peeked round it. And I could see my friends in there all running around in their little uniforms and everything. And my mother inquired, and she was quite a timid woman. She wasn't one to sort of push herself forward, inquired about whether, um, you know, I could join. And um, and my this woman turned round and said, well, really, I think you should have adopted one of our own, don't you? Unbelievable. Uh, and my mother told me that story, you know, very clearly. Not in a, I don't think she recognised the significance of it to me, but she felt that because I was in their family, I should be treated the same as them. Right. And, um, and therefore she hadn't really taken on the idea that sooner or later I was going to be out there in the white world facing that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and how was I going to deal with that? Well, I picked up very much at that time, young as I was, that um, I was going to have to be facing that nonsense mm. quite quickly mm. if she wasn't around. Mm. And, and did it make you stronger, do you think? Did you, did you just realise you were going to have I to be really much tougher? I don't really know. I mean, bit by bit, you put pieces together. I mean, I, it's my mother would always, wherever we went, I was always introduced as, this is my daughter, we adopted her. Now, that covered everything. So she didn't really have to talk about anything but also after that. Dis- distance, but it puts of... that distance. Mm. And, and I felt that there was... Um, I had to be explained. Yeah. And it is that. I mean, no other child has to be explained. You know, even if they've got buck teeth and, you know, all these kinds of things. That you, you don't explain any of that. It's your daughter. You love them, whatever they're like. You know, not that I have anything against no one's got buck teeth, but I mean, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean by that. Um, the, the other thing as well I think I should say is my mother wasn't isolated in terms of she was a white working-class woman who at that time, um, to bring extra money into the family, the uh, fostering of black children from um, Commonwealth countries mainly, sort of Nigeria, Ghana, was happening. There were no checks, not in the way that there are now, um, for health and safety. I'm, you know, that this could be done purely and simply by advertising in a magazine or something like this, the, the, the parents, because they were generally coming over to study, like my father came over um, to study. And, um, and I always remember she, she, while I was young, she fostered another child who was from the Caribbean uh, called Sylvan. And his mother reputedly was a tiller girl. I, 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 I think that that was more my, my adoptive father's fantasy rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. She was very, very gorgeous. She obviously was a dancer. But I don't think necessarily she was a tiller girl because that was kind of the top of that particular tree at that time. But she used to come and um, they told her that she couldn't bring Sylvan's father, who was black. And he did come once. Um, and I remember being absolutely fascinated by him. They yeah. were sitting there. I mean, Joy, that was her name, um, was just absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Titian hair, everything, you know, sort of de blonde and, and, um, and sitting there with this black man. I'd never seen a black man before. And I thought, 
oh, my dad must look a bit like him, I suppose. And I was just peering round the corner at him and thinking how lucky Sylvan was that these were his parents and he was going to go away with them one day, Mm. uh, which he did Mm. in the end. But I wasn't. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the singer Pauline Black. We'll be back after this. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Welcome back to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest Pauline Black. When you were nine, you had another trauma, which was that you were sexually abused by a Mm neighbour, George. George was a friend of the family. In, in respect of the fact that he knew my one of my brothers. And he... I don't know how old he would have been. He'd probably been in his 40s, I suppose, at that time. But anyway, he'd got a younger wife. And they had a child, a small child. And um, it was suggested, because that's what people suggested in those days, that... I might like, I suppose, that was the, the, the inference that I might like some practice with babies because obviously that was what was expected of you at some point in time to have babies yourself. Um, no one in my family was particularly kind of, you know, um, young enough necessarily to, uh, or, or hadn't started a family. So that, that was the pretext upon I was going to go down to the house and help with the baby and do things like make sandwiches and all those sorts of things, little training. Um, that's how it started. And, um, and I went down there. Um, the baby was cute. I wasn't into babies even then, but, I mean, you know, you did what you had to do, sort of rock them and things like this. I, I mainly made sandwiches. <laughs> I was very good at that. And, um, and then 
um, he would come up to me and while she was putting the baby to bed and would start sort of intimately touching me and kissing me. I couldn't believe that somebody had somebody in the house. It, this wasn't like it was not somebody in the house. Had somebody in the house and their child was upstairs um, and they were doing this. But I honestly didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And could um, you tell your parents at all or did you feel too embarrassed? Um, I didn't tell my parents initially, but I told them I didn't want to go anymore. But they didn't really listen um, because, uh, you know, my mother loved babies. So she adored this woman and she adored this baby. Um, as she used to refer to the man as old George. Mm. Um, I suppose he was older. Um, but um, she didn't particularly like him. But she didn't particularly dislike him. But I just said I didn't want to go anymore. Mm. But that didn't really garner much that anyone was going to intervene. Mm. So um, this carried on for a while. And then one day I went down there and she wasn't there. And I don't know why. I just felt that I was in some degree of problem at that time. Um, because she'd always been in the house. He felt safe enough. That is the remarkable thing. Yeah. He felt safe enough that even while she was in the house that he could do that. Mm. Um, but anyway, she wasn't in the house. And that was, that got too scary. But fortunately, she came back um, before anything could get any more scary. And at that point, I told my mother that night and I said what had happened. I said, I don't want to go there anymore. And I said, I don't like him. And he did something. Mm. And then she asked me what he did. And in those days, it was somebody had interfered with you. That was common parlance for that sort of thing. She And then all hell let loose. And I wished I'd never said anything at all. And I'm sure most people in that sort of situation had that. That it was, she flew into a rage. She went into my father. She told him. I was then up for most of the night telling them what had happened. Uh, that was very, very difficult to do. Um, and uh, and also I knew while I was telling it that attitudes were changing yet again mm. towards me. Um, and you just feel like this whole bundle of trouble. Right. As just if it's trouble, your fault. As though it's your fault. It's terrible. Um, I have to say my father didn't take that attitude. Mm. He didn't take that attitude. Um, my mother was conflicted in all kinds of ways, I think, about that, as probably a woman would be. If, if, if she knew that such a thing had happened. Did your father then confront him? Well, what happened was that um, my brother, he was married by that time, he was called over to sit in the sitting room, as it was called, the front room of the house. And um, later, um, my father went down, confronted him, brought him back to the house with his wife, oh with goodness. the baby... Awful. Um, and I remember them all being sat round in a circle within the front room. And I was made to stand in the centre of that circle and say what happened. It's like sort of ritual humiliation. No, it was almost. ritual humiliation. It was awful. It was awful. Absolutely awful. Um, and Did you get uh, any support from them at all? No, no, no. Incredible. He denied everything, that I was a fantasist. 
and um, you know, and what else could you expect from from an adopted child? Um, and that there was bad blood, and obviously, look at her mother. You know, look how that was. Um, but you were nine at that stage. Yes. Mm. Um, it's uh, well, yeah. So did you, you don't transgress if you're an adopted child. Well, when, I, when I say you, I, I would say yes. You're quite right to correct me. You can't transgress because underlying everything, certainly in those days, was that you should be grateful. So there was nothing unconditional about it. Mm. Normally people are fairly unconditional with their children. Um, whatever they do, you will love them. Um, but there was no unconditionality with, um, if there is such a word, um, <laughs> with, with, with me. It was, so you um, thought you had to sort of earn the support? And no, love. I just knew that I had to get out as soon as okay. possible. Um, but I knew that my best way of getting out was to get an education and yeah. get the hell out of Dodge, really. Mm. So, it's uh, incredibly mature to think that, though. Um, well, I think the experiences that I'd, I'd had up until then made me that way. Mm. Um, because if you feel like a fish out of water... If there are no other black people around, only very intermittently that you either see on the street or maybe one who came to the house that time, and you know what the attitudes within the house are to other black people, um, and you happen to be black, you're going to formulate opinions about yourself and about the world and how the world sees you much earlier than if you can live a fairly blissful existence with mm. your dolls. So did it also make you quite political? Because you did, um, I thought it was fascinating, you painted on a piece of cardboard, say it loud, I'm black and proud. Well, that was when I was 15 and did, I discovered James Brown yeah, and, 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 and things like this. And Was and it about asserting your identity? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But and that hair, was because other people... Hair? Yes, I did. Other people were asserting their identity. Yeah. I was 15, it's 1968. Mm. And all things seem possible. Yeah. And that was the wonder of it. In 1968, black people came to the forum and uh, the Black Panther movement started. Um, there was visibility. There was Angela Davis, who was this fantastic creature with an afro and uh, who looked a bit like me and uh, was assertive, had opinions, um, was part of this movement in somewhere called Oakland, California. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody wanted to go to California at that time. And uh, the whole hippie movement was going on. The counterculture was happening. And it was everything that my parents weren't. Yeah. What did they say when you grew out your hair? No, oh, well, everybody had a fit about that. But it must I was, have looked fantastic. I was 15 by then. <laughs> And um, and it's quite difficult to keep a 15-year-old on track and start curling its hair, which my mother loved to do at every available opportunity. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they were horrified. I'm sure they were horrified. But I think that I was a little bit beyond their control at that time. Right, yeah. Um, and was I had an uncle who worked on the railway, and he thought that what this country needed was Enoch Powell. Um, and if only Enoch Powell sort of stood to the fore, this country would be a much better place. Mm. And I used to argue with him at that time. I felt as though I could. Mm. Nobody else did. Um, there was never a book in the house. I, whatever reading material, I used to go to the library to find these sorts of things. Um, but I used to read the newspapers, what newspapers came into the house, which were generally of the variety of news of the world and things like this and the Sunday pictorial at the time. But... Um, 
But no, I, I was gaining skills in argument and, um, and I was determined that Uncle Will wasn't going to get the better of me. And in a way, though, did you feel that education put another barrier between you and your family? That you Did they start to resent it, that you were almost making your way in the world, uh, getting beyond them? Well, I dare say them. they did resent mm. it. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have the wherewithal, if you know what I mean, mm. to really do anything about it. And apparently, so my um, birth mother said after I found her, she said that the one thing she said, particularly to my father, was that I want her to have a college education when she gets older. Um, and they had actually taken that on board. But at that time, I think that, you know, if you were black and you were female in this country, you were expected probably to go and work in the NHS mm. and become a nurse. Because to think any higher than that was... But you wanted to be mm. a doctor. I did yeah. want to be a doctor. And you trained as a radiographer. How did you discover music? How did you become a musician? Um, my husband bought a guitar. Well, he had a trumpet first, but then he didn't like that, so he bought a guitar. And he didn't like that either, so it just lay there. And I taught myself to play. Uh, not very well, but well enough that I could go to a folk club. Um, and in the back room of a pub here in Coventry called the Old Dyer's Arms... That um, was run by Barry and Mavis, who were tremendous landlords and landladies. They used to do staybacks, and uh, which means that you draw all the curtains, <laughs> and everybody kind of you know has a bit more booze in the back room. Um, but there was a folk club going on at the same time, so there was some entertainment for them. And really, you just rocked up with your instrument, you sat there and said, I'd like to play, and it went round in a circle. And a guy called Dave Bennett, who ran the club, used to say, Pauline, have you got anything this week? OK, bang one out then. <laughs> and, and that's how it was. And I was the only black person there, so I suppose I was seen as a bit of a novelty, like, what might this person bring to the party? I really just saw it as a hobby I think at first um, and didn't have any more aspirations than that but slowly bit by bit there were other folk clubs and um, there's a guy in town called Pete Willow who um, runs CV Folk who's still around but he used to write for the Coventry Evening Telegraph and he ran folk clubs in different places and he said do you want to come down and, uh, you know, I've got an artist coming and um, do you want to support them? So I said, yes. So he said, I'll pay you £10. And I had 10 songs, literally 10 songs at that time. And I thought a pound a song. <laughs> pound well, that's song, pretty yeah. good. <laughs> and how did you join the selector then? Um, well, out of that, uh, that particular gig, uh, I, I got through my 10 songs and I duly paid my £10 and I thought, wow, this is wonderful. There was um, a, a, a young black guy uh, from Warwick University who was sat in the audience called Lawton Brown. He was doing um, politics, philosophy and economics at Warwick at the time. And he came up to me afterwards. I think it was a chat-up line, really. <laughs> yeah. It's at the time I took... I took him completely seriously. As I take everybody seriously. No, it wasn't. Do you want to be in my band? He said, "I think that you should come and write songs with me." So I took him at his word, and um, would go round to his place um, and write songs. And one of those ended up on the first Selector album. And through him, I was introduced to a band in Coventry, an all-black band called Hardtop Twenty Two, most of whom would go on to be in the Selector. 
And I was introduced to Neil Davis, our uh, solitary white songwriter um, and uh, band leader at the time of The Selector. And um, yeah, out of that came The Selector. And how did you choose the name Pauline Black? Because you changed your name at that point, didn't you? Oh, I think that um, I was working at the time and um, in the radiography department and I was kind of up for promotion, although they were a little bit weird about promoting sort of um, any any, um, black people to uh, senior radiographers or things like that at that time. There were ones who went before me that um, who were Indian, who had had great difficulty being promoted, um, and you know, far younger white women being promoted ahead mm. of them. So I knew it was going to be difficult, but nonetheless, I didn't want to give up my job. And I didn't actually know that the selector were going to do anything. Um, and um, I thought, I'd better change my name because we would be beginning to be reviewed and and plus I didn't think Pauline Vickers, which was my name at the time, was very cool. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, I'll change it. And we were sitting around free-forming and the bass player, Charlie Anderson, sort of said, oh, well, what should we do, what should we do? And he said, Pauline, Pauline's black. And Pauline's, and I thought, Pauline's black. Yeah, that would do. That would do nicely, thank you. Because it forced my whole family to call me black. They were very unhappy that the uh, vicar's name was not um, carried off into this <laughs> illustrious future <laughs> at the time um, and that I changed it. But I changed it by deep poll and I haven't really looked back and I feel much more comfortable that way. Mm-hmm. And what was it like going on Top of the Pops? What was the first song that you sang on it? Uh, on my radio was the first song that we sang. Um, Top of the Pops was good. Uh, other than the the fact that you mimed, yes, and you had to <laughs> re-record the song, yeah, legs and code, legs yeah. and code, mm, and um, and yeah, I I wasn't well. It was all a learning experience. It was none of us had ever done anything like that before. We'd never been near a TV mm. studio. We didn't know how it worked. Um, we didn't in those days. The BBC was very BBC, and. Um, and they were getting used to, I suppose, um, you know, black bands, British black bands. Um, and Steel Pulse had obviously been on there beforehand and uh, done a song called Ku Klux Klan where um, they'd had, uh, you know, white pillowcases with the eyes cut out and things. So that was obviously very, very difficult for them to sort of take on board. Um, and here we were, well, two-tone as it were, and uh, talking about, you know, black and white people playing in bands together by example mm. rather than by literal um, talking in that way. But uh, that was what the music was about. So they were having to embrace something that was, I'm not going to say was anathema to them, but certainly wasn't in their remit necessarily at the time. Did you feel your music was very political? Do you feel that? feel that the band was political Mm. I I mean you've got to remember that you don't have to be political in terms of you know policies and uh, all of these kinds of things you are political by the very fact that you exist and you've put yourself in this configuration you've put yourself in a band and uh, and here is a black female of you know Mm. mixed heritage fronting a band 
um, and it has one white person in it, people are going to notice. And it has a guy with raster locks in it in a suit. I mean, everything was against all norms at that time. Um, and people didn't necessarily know whether I was a boy or a girl. Um, they must have been blind, but anyway. It's, um, so, so, yes, I mean, from that point of view, we didn't have to say anything. We were being it. And you were touring with Madness, weren't you? In the we were tour- touring um, with the specials and Madness. It must have been an incredible time, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. They did were you incre- appreciate They were incredible them? shows. They mm. were incredible shows. I did appreciate it. I mean, I didn't think that we'd really be doing anything very much at all. Um, that uh, you know, we might do a few shows, maybe outside of Coventry. But to do a 40-date tour of the whole of Britain and to have the places packed out with 2,000 people going crazy every night and to have a top 10 single during that period of time. But, I mean, it wasn't without, um, it wasn't without edge or trauma or any of those kinds of things. Um, apart from our manager, Juliette uh, DeVee, as she was at the time, she's now married to Billy Bragg, um, she was the only other woman mm. on the tour. And you also had skinheads at, coming to some of the concerts yeah, and we did you got shouted at and you got abuse and and how did that feel could you cope with that or did you just ignore them no no I never ignored them I mean I, there'd be no point in ignoring them I mean we were there really to rile them <laughs> I mean it wasn't and, 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 did that feel I, and I just want to correct something that not all skinheads are racist <laughs> this is just a trope that is put around by you know red tops rags and things like that certainly at the time it was, um, they weren't in the main. They were very, um, they'd been listening to music that was coming from the Caribbean, ostensibly Scar, Blue Beat, Rocksteady, for years. A real skinhead. The whole way of they dressed was based on how um, young black men who uh, worked on the docks um, back in the 50s, uh, who started listening, you know, having these records because they were always imports and things like this, how they dressed uh, with Doc Martens, steel-capped uh, toe boots um, and the uh, jeans that were halfway up the leg, all these wonderful things that, and they were assimilated by young white working-class men who did that too. And I knew some of these skinheads in school because this, our school, the catchment area for some of them was um, uh, uh, Dagnum. And there were a good 10 kids in our school that embraced that sort of style and, uh, and had those kind of records. So that's where I first, I was introduced to the music that I now play by, um, by white people. Interesting. <laughs> and did you ever feel unsafe when you were touring, particularly when there were racist chants? No. Mm. I, I mean, I should have done, probably. Mm. I mean, in retrospect, mm. I think I must have been mad. But but uh, I never felt unsafe. I never felt unsafe. I always felt that I could argue my way out of most things. Um, mainly because um, most of the women who were around at that time were... were um, well, they were people like Debbie Harry. They were people like Chrissy Hind and things like this. So women were coming to the fore. 
people like Susie Sue, people like the Slits. Um, you know, no one was going to argue with Ari Up and the Slits. Mm-hmm. Nobody at all. <laughs> they were very strong women, weren't they? Yeah, mm. yeah. And do you think you suffered more from racism or sexism or um, ageism? Or do you think actually in some ways you haven't suffered at all, you've just used them all to... To, to give you more suffered grit. is such a mm. weird word isn't mm-hmm. it? it's a hard word isn't I, it? Mm-hmm. I don't really like the word mm. suffered we all have our experiences um all people you know suffer before they shake off this mortal coil or whatever so i'm, I'm not going to use the word suffer because it's it's unproductive mm. it doesn't get you anywhere to talk about i suffered i did this i did that people have suffered far more than i have black people black women in particular um, historically, I mean, I wasn't in the position of, say, somebody like Billy Holiday, that every venue that I went to, I had to use the back door or I had to go to the other end of town and stay in a complete dive hotel, but be paid loads of money in this particular venue. I mean, I, none of that mm. happened to me. So how can I posit my suffering against hers? Mm. I can't do yeah. that. Um, it was difficult. It was difficult. And it was made difficult by attitudes just attitudes and people who inhabited those attitudes and um, and, and and felt free to use them um, a, a, a against what our wishes might be. I'm very pleased to say that some of that is uh, being worked out. Mm. And do you think in some ways that makes you stronger, having to overcome things? No, I don't really like that trope no. either. <laughs> uh, well, it's because, uh, you know, you historically... People always seem to want to go, the strong black woman. I am no stronger than any white woman in that respect. It's just that my attitudes, my attitudes are a bit more developed, I would hope. Um, What do you uh, mean by that? um, Evolved. Evolved, you know. If if I've experienced racism, I'm not going to go and visit that on somebody else. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not going to actively try and hold somebody back uh, within my community because of um, who they are through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. And you didn't trace your birth parents until you were 42. Mm-hmm. And that was after your mother had died. Eight years after my mother died. Did you want to protect her, do you think, in any way? Um, well, I think anyone. It doesn't matter whether um, it's an adopted mother or it's a birth mother. If they die... Um, you're suddenly, you feel bereft, and I did. I felt very bereft after she died, because it happened fairly suddenly, uh, even though we knew she was ill, and there were things I wanted to say to her that I regret that I didn't say to her. Um, And there were things I found out afterwards, like she used to carry around all the press clippings. I didn't think she kept any, but she used to carry around all these press clippings in two carrier bags. That's fantastic. Mm. She would take them to weddings. She would take them to people's funerals and she would say, look, this is my daughter. Not this is my adopted daughter. No, it makes Mm. me shiver now to even think about it. Um, And I didn't know that. Mm. And if I had known that... I would have felt very, very differently. Because all people, when they get older, um, you know, they get needy. And she always wanted me to, you know, I'd moved to Coventry. So I wasn't there all the time. And I was away and I was doing things. And I just felt that, you know, in the fullness of time, I should have spent much more time with her. Spent much more, you know, not seen her as much of... um, 
yeah, not alienated her in mm. the way that possibly I did. Because I felt, because you have your identity removed from you, then you very much feel slightly, n- nothing isn't the right word, but you, you, you've got to rebuild it. And when I say, the, well, the title of my book, Black by Design, it is, I wasn't brought up as black. I was very aware that I was black, but I wasn't brought up in such a way. Mm. Um, and um, and that leaves you with this weird contradiction, this weird dilemma for the rest of your life. And it felt like the only person who could actually put that right was my mother, mm. my real mother. Mm. She could put that right because she could put all those pieces of the puzzle into place for me. And I wouldn't feel like this jigsaw with a big bit missing. Mm. Mm. So how did you speak to your mother? What was it like when you first spoke to her? Ah, well, I mean, that was... uh, I had to lie to my aunt initially. Um, And I I rang her up and I said that my mother had recently died and she had left something for somebody she used to work with in London and her name had been Eileen Magnus. I did know my mother's name because it was on a registered letter um, that my, my, my uh, adopted mother had got these checks in. And, uh, and as soon as my aunt heard the words left something, mm-hmm. <laughs> she was completely <laughs> voluble about everything. Oh, yes. Oh, well, oh, well, that's wonderful, isn't it? Oh, she's gone to Australia. Oh, let me get her address. So and I couldn't believe my ears. I couldn't believe uh, my ears. I thought, she's giving me all this information. Yeah. Well, and then I thought towards the end of the conversation, when I got my mother's address and phone number, I thought, should I say who I am? And I thought, better not, mm-hmm. <laughs> in case, you know, she rings my mother in advance. So I didn't. I wrote a letter, and a week later, there was a phone call um, at about five o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and my mother was in tears on the other end of it. Where's Bowen? Where's Belinda? (laughs) She was totally over the moon. So So did you then go out to Australia to see her? Yes, that happened a little while afterwards. And what was it like when you hugged her for the first time? Well, I think the first thing I thought, I didn't say, obviously, was, goodness me, she sounds like Dame Edna Everett. (laughs) That was what I thought. And when I saw her, I also (laughs) thought Did she look anything like you at all, do you think? No, but um, we had many mannerisms that are the same. Oh, really? Yeah. I, Fascinating. I, like what? If I'm idly standing around, I will stand in the ballet position third. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite unique. And she does that. And she does that. She does that. She, she, she just did it. Oh, when weird. I look at my legs, if I'm in the shower, I look at my legs and I see my mother's legs. They were exactly the same. Uh, different colour, but I mean the same legs. So did you feel a connection with her instantly? Did I feel a connection? Well, she also does another strange thing, or did another strange thing. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, She could go in and out of accents, just completely fluidly, depending on what she was talking about, who she was talking to. And if she was talking to somebody who had an accent, she would kind of fall in with this accent, Mm. which is embarrassing, for other people who are around, but I do the same thing, <laughs> completely independently. 
completely independently and I recognise that she did that and it was it is actually quite a peculiar thing to do (laughs) and looking back to yourself at the age of four when you found out that you were adopted what do you wish you'd known then that you now know oh I wish I'd known my father I without any doubt at all I just wish I'd known him Pauline Black thank you very much for talking to us my pleasure thank you thank you You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the singer Pauline Black. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts and you can download our interviews with guests including the Labour leader Keir Starmer, the rapper Professor Green and the poet Lem Sisse. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. And a big thank you to the Coventry Music Museum for hosting us today. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.